All right, everybody, this is our, one of our special Gen Con episodes. You are not going to get a, an individualized introduction for each of our Gen Con episodes, so this is the one that you'll hear over and over again. I am at Gen Con right now, uh, or was just at Gen Con, covering all kinds of things from Wizards of the Coast. I'm also going to be attending uh, the Kobold Press Seminars, uh, going to some press events and more, possibly some interviews and that kind of stuff, so expect some more of that coming out, including this episode. And don't forget, these are relatively unedited. All I'm doing is slipping in the intro to the episode and the ad from our wonderful sponsor, Noble Knight Games. Otherwise, it is pure, unadulterated Gen Con material. And speaking of unadulterated, that means we're not responsible for the content. Some of it may be risky. We're looking at you, Matt James. Uh, (laughs) We'll try to outline that in the show notes, so pay attention. And remember that large, sometimes loud convention rooms or exhibit halls or giant floors where there's a recording going on and a thousand people standing around, that will impact some of the audio quality. It may not be the best audio quality, but I guarantee you that the content will be the best content from Gen Con. And as we move into the the content that you're looking for... The, the thing that you're tuning in for here, we should mention, again, our sponsor is Noble Knight Games at noblenight.com. Check them out. They're a great game store specializing in out-of-print materials, but also carrying the newest in, in game books and, and other materials. Uh, so check them out and make sure to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. And with that, enjoy the coverage from Gen Con. Noble Knight is a long-standing game store specializing in finding out-of-print games while also offering the newest great releases. Including D&D? They got it from any edition. That's right, all of them. What if I want a board game? Card game, minis, or dice? Noble Knight has it all, and at a discounted price. In fact, Noble Knight has over 30,000 unique items on stock. And you know you can trust this Better Business Bureau accredited store with a satisfaction guarantee. Yeah, but I've bought too many things over the years. How can I justify spending even more? Good thing we're talking about Noble Knight, then. They'll buy your old gaming things and offer you cash or trade, so you'll be able to keep up with all the great gaming stuff you want. Check them out at noblenight.com. Wow, I'll go today. And be sure to tell them the Tome Show sent you. If you are in attendance because uh, your eyes sparkle whenever Wolfgang Bauer is in the room, uh, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Um... But uh, otherwise, Eric and I, a two-year consecutive Iron GM winner, and myself, industry veteran, will be more than happy to lead a discussion on uh, house rules, the good, no, the great. Well, it's okay. good, the Wolf- great, the bad. Wolfgang just said he doesn't even do that anymore. He just runs APG stuff. That is true. <laughs> so who is If you missed the last panel. The last... Oh, go out with fresh audience. Cool, we can repeat ourselves. Um, I so, already looked uh, into that. I am Brandon Hodge. Um, I am a freelancer uh, for Cobalt Press. And um, I got my start with them with the Halls of the Mountain King uh, adventure, which was a, a hardcover, a long-form adventure we published, and went on to write such games as uh, Sunken Empires for Cobalt Press and segued into Adventure Path writing for Paizo Publishing, uh, where I've published such titles as Shadows of Gallowspire, Feast of Ravenmore, Dead Heart of Zen, a lot of high-level climax stuff, and then most recently Rasputin Must Die, the soon-to-be infamous Chapter 5 yeah, of right. Reign of Winter. And um, 
I'm, I've been Gunslingers running, running games since I was eight years old. So I, I've uh, yep. uh, and, uh, kind of in the same boat for that. Yeah, um, so, and this is Eric. I've been Frank uh, House. Frank, yeah, you got it right after all these years. I'm taking a bite of this. Um, I've been GMing since about the same time frame as him. Eight, since I was eight years old, nine years old. I actually stole my uncle's uh, first edition books. It seemed right. They were stealing on the cover. And then uh, I do Iron GM. If you haven't done it, it's on Saturday. It's absolutely insane. Tickets are sold out. But if you want to watch the spectacle show up. Um, and I've won that two years in a row. Perfect score. And I've placed for eight years playing that in the top three. Um, it's some of like, the best storytellers I've seen for improv storytelling like, on the spot. And a lot of homebrew stuff out of there. And um, what else have I done? A lot of cartography for companies right now. Because it's quicker than writing. <laughs> <laughs> it pays better too. It does pay yeah. better. It does um, pay way better than writing. If you're good with art, do that. And we're short in the industry right now. Right. So homebrew. Yeah, let's get a sense of the systems everyone plays in. Um, Pathfinder players, fourth edition players, third edition players, second edition, first edition. Um. Call of Cthulhu. Any indie players at all? Like indie game players at all? All right, a couple. Cool. So skewing heavily toward D&D. D20. And D20, which is good for us because I think that's the systems we we most work in. But we're going to try to give you uh, some ideas for for anything. We just came fresh off a a G-Ebing panel and (laughs) covered a little little of the same territory. But... uh, House rules, um, and we'll get a lot of input from you guys too. Because uh, how many here actually run games and incorporate house rules? Good. If you're a player, I'm sorry that we make house rules. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually not the players making. <laughs> so, Eric, why do house rules exist, and why do you use them in your games? Um, for me, at first, it was not liking certain rules in the system or wanting it to be lighter or heavier in rules. Nowadays, though, it's not. It's usually to reflect the setting I'm running. Um, I run a steampunk Victorian horror setting. That's my homebrew campaign. Uh, was actually getting made into a video game for a while. And I wanted to reflect the brutality, I guess you'd say, of like that time frame. You get shot, you kind of die in that time frame. And the Pathfinder system, previous 3.5, didn't really reflect that well enough. So we changed over at the 3.5 time to the old, was it D20 Star Wars rules mm-hmm. with wounds and vitality? Except that you only got one hit die of vitality and everything else was wounds. And it was brutal and fun. And that we, this war house ruling for our group really got serious. It was to reflect what we run. Um, not to screw people over or anything like that, just to make sure people understood it was a very brutal horror style game. Right. Almost always. It's to reflect the game, the style I want to play. I change them. My home, oh, that's the other thing. My homebrew rules are not the same constantly. They're different from game to game and session to session. Like, if I'm going to run a pirate one, there will be new rules adapted. Similar for those that play APG. You may pick up an adventure path, and there will be fame in this one and infamy in that one and rules for building campaigns. Um, a lot of my homebrew system is testing out a new rule set that I want to use that I inject into whatever we're doing. Eric, do you think it is fair to introduce a home rule and then shift it. Do you think shifting a house rule like balancing breaks, it? But what do you well balancing it? But do you think um, a reliance on a house rule and then kind of pulling the rug out from under players is that fair or not? If, they don't, if, if they don't recognize, depends the on how bad after. they cry. If they really are upset about it, then no, I probably did the wrong thing. But uh, yeah, I think it is. I mean, 
let's be honest, all rules in the games we play weren't great the first time. So, yeah, I change stuff all the time. But I usually do a consensus with the players. I make sure that they're all kind of on the same page with me for it. Um, we changed the house rule for how DR worked yeah. because it was an atrocity. So <laughs> for what we were doing, it was DR equal to something ridiculous. Yeah, we change them. You have to. I take a similar tact uh, to, to your attitude um, about player vitality, as it were, player constitution or character constitution, in that uh, my house game is a, is, is familiar, familiar with the E6 concept and the other related concepts. E6 is sort of the, the blanket concept of D20 games that cut off on or about 6th level. Um, where, and I just had to experience this sort of number crunching with Rasputin Must Die, where I was tasked with presenting a real world, world version of Earth World War One soldiers. And I didn't want to, and, but it was for a high-level Pathfinder campaign where I felt that it was not going to be realistic if every World War One soldier that you would expect to find <clears throat> in, in a Russian trench was a 10th-level fighter, right? You know, it's just not realistic. A grenade ought to blow the guy's lungs out, you know? So um, so I, I had to balance this aspect of, of how you know how to do that, and I turned toward my, my E6 experience. And what that is, is that the level cutoff is E6, and that's the generally agreed upon cutoff for where you go from real world simulation of what we could reasonably expect. Yep. An experienced SEAL team member might be a 5th or 6th level you know, fighter, uh, and beyond that, you start not only getting into spells that start to break the game, your teleports and your invisibility mm-hmm. and the uh, <clears throat> and fly, the, the things realism that really, goes out the window. Right, realism, and, and players are able to then start circumventing encounters that you might otherwise expect them to engage in. And uh, so, not only spells, but also the limits of what we expect from non-fantastic human endurance. Now, is that only on the hit point half? It's on everything. Skills, I mean, it's, it's, it's skills and everything. Now, E6, what it does is um, is it cuts off your level. Your level cap is 6th level. And there are other variations, E7, E8. Mm-hmm. But the general uh, consensus <clears throat> is it, it cu- cuts off your actual level gain. And then you continue to buy feats with your experience points. So you actually can buy into feats that you might not get till 8th, 10th, 12th level, but you can only do so many things in a combat round. So just because you can do some double slice or something doesn't mean that you you can do that multiple times around. You can only do so much. So those feats don't really tend to unbalance things because you're base attack bonus doesn't really increase or, or whatever for, for those of you. My so, um, fourth and, and of course the, the, you already, <laughs> for part. those who are familiar with basic role playing in Call of Cthulhu, there's already a built in limit on hit points. Yep. Even as your skills increase, your <clears throat> hit points really don't. That's the biggest realism issue I usually have with D20 anything is hit points. I mean, you're I have 157 hit points. Well, I don't have enough freight trains, so I don't know what to tell you. Right. Um, our too for on the monster half of stuff was dealing uh, with fourth edition too with one hit monsters, but they're still capable of hitting you. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for years, and then finally went to fourth edition. I'm like, oh, well, somebody was listening. Yeah. I got that was one of the things I was super happy about with actually that setting. As, as much as I don't play it anymore, I still keep that rule. Um, not all so minions. the minion rules for, for those rules. fourth edition. I always players, keep right. it. You you know he can hit you, but you hit him and he's dead. They're just they don't have the the will to take it. And I know hit point representation is you dodging and everything else, but it just there's something about it in like um, homebrew campaigns. Do you uh, do you guys make new rules 
for every time you sit down, or do you have a set like sheet you hand out, like kind of thing? A set sheet. My like, are they written out, yeah. or do you just one of them? mine that, that I really like that I do? It's a house rule about searching a room, <laughs> and uh, you know, because there's always that argument. You know, how, how, how much does it take? You know, a perception or a search check. How yeah. you know how long does it take? How much ground are you covering? And for me, I, I finally made this little matrix, and uh, I'm not going to give you the specifics, but it generally is. A set of DCs and how much time it takes to achieve those DCs, as well as modifiers for you know if they want to do a quick search. So my players now know there's basically five different searches they can do. They can do a quick search. They can do a thorough search. They can do a standard search. They know how much it takes, which to me feeds into how many random encounters I need to be considering rolling for, or or you not use rolling random just encounters. Going. If I'm going to roll around. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> or, yeah, so yeah, I know how much time they're eating up. Spell durations is another important one there. It's, uh, to me, it's just not fair. Okay, you know, we've got this 50 by 50 room. Yep. You know, I rolled a DC 20 search check, and, you know, what did we find? Uh, they have to now, they're more involved with the search. They have to gauge the value of their time versus their spell durations that might be running out. You know, if it's first level and you've only got an hour on your mage armor, then, you know, you, you might not want to take ten minutes on a thorough search because you're going to lose a chunk Do of Do something your, very simple. Right. And so, um, for, so time management, to me, is an important <laughs> aspect of, of my house rules is to, is to, um, to me, a combat is always, is always worth five minutes. Um, no matter how long it might have, even if it was over 30 seconds by the rounds, the combat's five minutes. That's going to be the combat plus your licking your wounds and everything else you need to do. Yep. So I, I and knowing where to search in a room, right? So, so time now. management is is important <clears throat> to me in that aspect. Tossing an entire house, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I'm not afraid with that time management to just impose fatigue on players. I do. And go, time. listen, you have been. Do it, you know, you've been at this for a while. It is time to go. Searching graveyards when I do that because they take forever. Yeah. <laughs> fatigue and for it's great. And then the ghouls show up. Uh, but yeah, like, like I said, I think fatigue, vitality, really uh, uh, the character's constitution and, and the limits of their endurance to me is, is I spend more time theorizing on that in my house rules. This stuff's very underplayed in D20 in general. Every D20 system has some form of fatigue where they stack. They get worse as you go on, and they're very underplayed because nobody's running cross country. No one wants to. No one wants to actually do the line that goes from city to city. No one wants to do that adventure. Right. Um, so, for things like searching and physical activity and going through dungeons, I, I like to impose fatigue for stuff to make it feel a little more real and deadly. Nothing's worse than fighting when you're actually using the fatigue rule. It's horrible. So people learn to rest. Let's hear a house rule. We'll talk about. Uh, well, you were question. talking about how you use. The minion rules from fourth edition. Uh, yeah. I was wondering, y'all talk about like stealing stuff from other games. Yeah, <laughs> we like, do it a lot. Like, we're just, just combining systems. Uh, I believe that uh, we talked about this in the other one for for the other panel we did. Um, play a lot of different systems. I know we just said we all play D twenty, but play a lot of systems because you will learn to run other systems mm-hmm. in your game better, and you'll learn to find homebrew rules from other systems. Like right now, I've been using the experience rule from the new uh, Marvel Heroic role playing, where you have milestones, and those milestones, if you achieve them you get experience i do something very similar even in d20 now we played that for like two months i was was running a ninja turtle campaign of all things just for something crazy and uh i took those rules and brought them over and we use it for 
fame and fortune and stuff like that where you get points for achieving milestones. Um, but yeah, steal from other games. The escalation die from 13th Age yeah. is, is, is a what great is that? one. I've never used that. It, it's a D6. Uh, you, you, you want to explain? You might have it, a better handle it, on it. It's, it's, a, it's a D6, and basically on, on round one, you add plus one to all your D20 rolls. All the and PCs. Round, wow. On round two, you add two. Three, and it, well, it's so supposed it to take your three-hour three combat and, yeah. right. and, and, and shorten it, <clears throat> and uh, it, it does. I mean, uh, people die faster. They die yes. a lot faster, yeah. uh, and uh, and so and so then you can just move the story along, and then you know when your characters bust into a room and there's like four things the same CR as you, they don't go, oh, well, crap, that's the rest of the night, you know. It, <clears throat> and in their system, some monsters, and it's pretty easy to translate it to D20, some monsters have abilities based on where they are in the escalation die. <laughs> so if they're on three, that might trigger the dragon's breath weapon, for example, or that might be when the wizard goes invisible. I've been doing that for a long so, time. I just never called it that. And, and awesome. there's a, one of the last issues of Kobold Quarterly gave sort of a generic version of of that system uh, there, but I encourage you to buy the 13th page while you're at it. Who's got a, a, a house rule uh, you'd like to discuss? Either a question or something you do that we would love to talk about. And steal. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm just getting Shadowrun. And my biggest problem with Shadowrun is the combat, actually. It's slow? It's very slow. Buy 5th edition. <laughs> well, so for some background here, we don't play Shadowrun. Uh, it's, it's a pool game where you, where you have a dice pool, and during combat you apply lots of modifiers. And I find my players are eating up huge amounts of time trying to figure out what modifiers they want to stack on these roles. And what should be a very fast amount of combat becomes just hours of dragging on. Do you have a solution? Or are you hoping to find one? Well, I'm kind of, I'm kind of bouncing around, and, and at the moment, my solution has been to to remove these different modifiers, to remove you know weapon ranges, remove you know, all the the realism effects to try and strip this combat system down. I don't know if that's the best way of doing it. I didn't strip it oh, down. I ran into that problem with Dogs in the Vineyard. For those of you oh, familiar with that game, so great, I've got a I've got a player that it doesn't matter what we're doing. If he pulls out his magic cards or, or we're rolling d twenty, he will break the system. His first time playing Dogs in the Vineyard. If you're not familiar with that system, you basically just get to make your own skill set. You make up a character and you're like, I'm good looking. That gives me an extra d six. I've got an ugly scar. That gives me a d eight. And yep. and you get this little you get to sort of make your own unique features about your character that if you can justify them in an encounter, you get to add that die to the pool, which sounds from, I, I'm not familiar with Shadowrun system, but you've got a nice one. And what he did is he would go, he would just, you know, be in a conversation, and he would go, I've got an ugly scar, and that intimidates this guy, so I add a D6. Oh, and by the way, I'm also good looking, and that intimidates the guy, I add a D8. I'm carrying my Bible, so that adds another D4. And, I, you know, I'm wearing this nice vest, and it really impresses this guy. And before you know it, every damn skill he's got He's he's justified its use, and so what I what I did about midway through the game, as I said, 
You get two. <laughs> and that's it. So pick the best two. Because we're count. not going to sit here all night while you talk about how impressed this guy is with your nice shoes and, and your big gun. Yeah. So I, you know, I would say, and I don't know, not being familiar with the system, that may or may not work. But I would say you get two. Pick your best two and bring it and, and justify it. To, to, a, to a point, I played a lot of Shadowrun growing up. And where I grew up, it was... Uh, D&D in the summer, Shadowrun Battletech in the winter. I don't know why, um, but that's how it went. And the old Shadowrun, like second edition, was even worse, what you're talking about. But um, similar to that, yeah, like you're talking about the bonuses you get, like the rangefinder bonuses, the smart link and all that. Caps help. The real answer is either know your bonuses and you can give them to me in five seconds or you don't get them. Yeah. And that's how I was doing it. Like, have your stuff written out. Have your note card ready as a player. Because that's a game where the players have to actually do some work. They have to know their crap. And if they don't know it, then they just don't get it. And then next round, they'll remember it and they can add it then. That goes for D&D, too. Everybody has it. Oh, I forgot I had Bless. You're right, you did, so it doesn't work. Um, it, it, right. And, I, and I, don't, I won't retro. You can get it next round, but make a note. You'll remember, you know. If it's pivotal, maybe I'll give it to them. But it's funny how your bonus goes from five to seven. When you want it to, so yeah, it's and and what we did in our our big group is um, our dry erase mat or our paper, whatever reason for our mats for the day. We write our bonuses in big bold print on the bottom, and I learned that playing the uh, Marvel Heroes again because you have a Doom pool and the Doom pool is open and everybody can see what the GM has for bonus die. Do the same thing for Shadowrun. I write their names on the side, and when they do something, I write it there, so everybody can call them on it. When they don't remember, or so they can remember. I'm obviously playing the bad guy here because I think my player's cheap. But <laughs> I write down what the number is and, and go from there. And everybody knows what it is. But like, no, remember you have that. It's it's really simple. So next to their name, I just put a bonus. That's what was my cure for Shadowrun for a long time. Um, in Shadowrun, people trying to count their dice up is a pain. Tell them to buy more D6s of different colors and just make the pools ahead of time. That's what we did for Shadowrun. They, I know they have to spend money, but they'll be okay. They'll buy some D6s, right, but that's right. what I did. They had different dice no, for all their skills. A, a, a gamer buying dice. Yeah, right. What are, what are you going to do? Anybody else have a question or, or something you're doing at home? Keeping cowardly players engaged. Cowardly players or cowardly characters? There is a difference. Players that are afraid to engage? Well, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Get a new player. How to house rule... Player interaction. Spotlight him. Yeah. Spotlight the player. Like find out. He's the master GM, so that's where. That's yeah. Probably. If you um, if you have a player that just is okay, I played Iron GM last year and I had a group actually. This a primer, prime, great example. It's five people. I don't know you. I can't run you if I know you. And uh, they had a girl in the group who would not talk. She said oh, five words right. in five that. hours. Not, literally, I was check marking her words. On the, because I didn't know what to do. I she was this. she was the she was like this, and you didn't engage her, and she'd shy away. Now, well, to her, she was a cosplayer, and she was playing her character, and I didn't know that. But she was playing her character, playing D and D, and it was frustrating for me as a GM. It was the worst case scenario I've ever had in my life, and I was doing anything I can to engage him. So I went outside the box with her. And actually, noticed her bag had uh, World of Warcraft patches and artwork on it. I have a bunch of artwork with me. Engage them outside the game a little bit to make them comfortable. So a lot of times it's a comfortable thing about maybe fear of their own voice, whatever it may be, but make them comfortable as a person. They'll usually be more comfortable as a player. And usually that person's uncomfortable because there's some clown at your table giving them a hard time. Um, you just kind of pull them aside, like just give them a couple weeks to get get in their skin. 
All right, let, let him be. It'll be good. Because the problem usually isn't that player being afraid to play. They're usually afraid to speak out in front of somebody else who's there. The other thing I've done for that is run them in a private session where it's just one-on-one. The next time I'll add another player and bring them in. And what I did for that person is I built the game around them. I didn't tell them, but I built it around them, and I slowly brought all the players in one week at a time until the whole group was there and they were comfortable playing their character around other people. That was the biggest cure I had for... It was the first time a younger person had played in our group. He was like 14, and we're all like 20. You have an 80-year-old that doesn't like to talk? (laughs) Let's hear it. We're friends that have been playing for 20 years. Wow. They play lots of other... So, so they're a pro. So they're war gamers? Old men that, that are secure with themselves. Yeah. They don't have issues. Uh, <laughs> but it's just when we, one of the games that I need to run, we, we kind of switch off this D&D. And their reaction, in other games, they're bold. They're up front. But when they're facing something, and I'm not talking about the odds being, you know, absurd. But just a, a decent encounter. So you yeah you you use the word cowardly. Do they feel so you mean are they just like they're scared for their character to die? Therefore, they're not engaging with encounters. I would assume that's what's in their mind when, when they're running from the situation. So literally, the yeah the, the player is making is causing their character mm. to flee situations. What they do is completely leave the, the, the encounter. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> Tell them they that is hard, that man. is a different problem. That's totally different. I was talking with a person. My bad. I mean, for me, they're breaking a, a cardinal rule of of, uh, of D&D in Being particular is really you're, you're splitting up the group, and uh, I would make them pay for it. And if they're <laughs> if you're talking about someone who's not, you know, you're not going to hurt their feelings if they're an experienced player, then yeah. You, oh, you really you run down the dark hallway without a torch? Make sure they've got light source. Yep. Really? You do that? Oh, the shadows start moving on you. Guess what? That's good. You know, um, I would make them pay for the cardinal sin of splitting up the group because in D and D that it is, is a, cardinal, a sin. cardinal sin. His players should be getting him for that. Like they should yep. be. Yeah. So what you need is an immovable rod with a uh, key fob. Right. <laughs> you can run, you hit that switch. No, uh, yeah, I've had that actually happen. Um, we had a player that was, he hates making characters because he thinks it's too involved. And he doesn't want his characters to die because it's such an involved process. He gets invested mm-hmm. in it. So I didn't kill him. I just started like taking digits away from him, like fingers, <laughs> toes. I'm not kidding. I really did. And he learned that he doesn't have to die, but it can still be painful for his mm-hmm. character. He was a thief, so I, I started taking fingers away. And I had a NPC that worked with him that was like, every time you flee, you're jeopardizing the rest of the people. You have things you're supposed to be doing. I'm sorry. Give me your hand. Yeah, you know, let's mob it up. I'm cutting off one of your fingers. And uh, he stopped running, surprisingly. Because um, the penalty went from one to five. And he's like, I will not I will not cast anything. You will not get healing. If you come back and you're, you you have these fingers regenerated, I'll cut an extra one off. Those do not come back until I say you're worthy of having them back. Got all joy on his ass. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, and you know what, though? It lasted, like I said, like he got minus five, and he's trying to pick a lock, and he realizes this is just not happening. The trap blew up, hit him in the face. It was horrible. And he finally went back. He's like, I've learned my lesson. He's like, well, you get one finger back. 
So punish them in a, in a story, in a cinematic way. Don't punish them by yelling at them as a GM. Right. Because right. then you're just going to lose the player. And if that's necessary, that's a different panel. We don't have that today. But right. like having to get get rid of them. Punish them in game, but make it fun. Make it fun for everybody else too. Because they'll contemplate doing it again. Well, it, it sounds like what he what he thinks the a victory is is living, opposed to what the actual goal. Is. Well, then kill it. <laughs> One second. Yeah. They will do that, but every opportunity they get to make some money or capitalize. Yeah. They, I mean, intelligent play when it comes to that, but when it comes to a battle. Which is usually a part of the It's going to sound ridiculous, but uh, there used to be uh, old wrestling styles where you leather strapped yourself together. Do that to him once when he has to have a combat. Have somebody who's really good with like rope use or a grappler. Don't let him go anywhere. Yeah. Grapple him and pummel the crap out of him. Like, bring the rock there. Like, make it really painful. <clears throat> or you say, like, I want to invite Matthew. Matthew, you want to join us up here? I would love for you to join us. Everyone, this is Matthew Stenson, freelancer extraordinaire. Introduce yourself. I'm Matthew Stenson. I'm freelancer extraordinaire. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. What, what's some stuff you've done? Uh, I did some. Uh, I just recently did the, some deep magic book. Uh, with uh, Cobalt Press, I was in any award-winning Streets of Zobeck with Cobalt Press, mm-hmm. and uh, I was a finalist in RPG Superstar 09. Nice. Um, and we're going to get to your questions. So what's your favorite house rule? Uh, we stole the we played Pathfinder, but we stole the Blood of the Roll from a fourth edition because mm-hmm. uh, people are always like, "Well, how bad is he hurt?" And I either go, "He's blooded it or he's not." And that's all I'll tell him unless they make, unless they take the time to make a heal or cast death watch. Or, or yeah, or unless they unless they actively do something opposed to just wanting free information from me. Right uh, about whether or not they should power it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that, right. And that's basically they're they're wanting they're wanting to justify a mid max scenario. You know where uh, uh, they're wanting me to tell them what to do and what's the safe action. And and I think their their character should figure it out on their own. Um, I had a possible solution for you. I had a similar situation, but our character was a 40k player, but uh, he wasn't running away. He was no, I play. I'm... He didn't like to interact very well with some of the players. He's a very solo lone wolf kind of guy. And what we did, what I did, is I stripped away experience points and gave each character victory conditions because that was speaking a bit more of his mm-hmm. 40k. So it also helped me then gauge how fast the advancement progression would go by using these victory conditions that I based on what their character was, and then what I wanted it to align with the goals of the game and what they had to do. So each character had four or five different things that they wanted to accomplish and rewarded victory experience. And that really spoke to his wargaming background. On that note, um, so I did uh, worked for video game companies for a long time and did development for it. And that was one of the things, like when achievements came out, I know achievements for games, but... Um, not in achievements, but milestones, same concept. Like, give the man something he has to do in combat. I can't see you anymore, but I know you're behind this pillar. Um, <laughs> give him something he has to achieve, like, and make it combat-oriented. Yeah. Like, if, you know, his goal is to slay X, Y, and Z, and if he doesn't do it, his wife's dead. Make it taken. Like, do something that makes make milestones, make him have to engage. Because you might find out it's not as bad as he thinks. Yeah, mechanically... 
Um, if you want to lean on mechanics, there are new campaign feats. Yeah. Again, I hate, to, are... I hate to just cop to, you know, here's a rule to solve all your problems, but campaign feats that you have to work, you have to heal a thousand hit points and you'll get this feat. You have to earn the feat instead of just taking it. Star Wars Saga um, did that for a long time with the Destiny stuff. So. Yeah, and then there's, uh, yeah, yeah, so there's campaign feats. And Story is... feats and campaign, um, that's for the Mythic Adventures. Oh, I was going to say Mythic Adventures, the Mythic tiers, you can't just take that tier. It's a, it's a, it's a, and it's a brand new book, so I'm not too familiar with it uh, other than perusal. But uh, you have to achieve those levels. You can't just level up and poof, I've got a mythic tier. You heal yeah, like you, you've got, yeah, you've got to do crazy like Herculean task in order to earn that. And and so it's you can't just play the numbers and get your reward. And, you know, I got my experience points. I'm gonna, yep. you know, I'm gonna buy a new level. You have to achieve something within story. Punishment is more. And you reminded me of, of one of my favorite rules, and I believe. This is Rob Heinsu's um, torture rules. Oh man! And uh, this, this is was, from this the... was in Cobalt Quarterly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's got this great little subsystem he uses where, when you need to torture a PC, yep. Um, which <laughs> you know should be always every every session. No. Um, there is time, yeah. You know, and it's always been a problem. How, how do you do that? You know, under threat of death with the PC who's got 150 hit points. You know, um, and what this is take as much as yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, is you have I, I think in the Cobalt Quarterly article it's a, it's a chart, but I translate it into a series of cards. Yep. And the torture is you can answer the question or you can draw the card. And the card is everything from your fingernails get yanked hungry, out, yeah. your negative two to every skill check, yep. to some really brutal graphic yep. stuff. Cutting the and if they know what's you know show them what's on those cards and start shuffling them. And so shuffling's facing them. Yeah. Do not do a lot for stuff. And I, it is brilliant. I mean, it, it takes this, oh, you know, I, I've got a, you know, plus six fortitude or whatever, man. You know, I'm just going to, the cleric will heal me up. They're going to be here any minute to, oh, oh, he's going to, you know, peel no the skin safe. off my face, nope. you know, and it's just going to happen because that's, yeah, it's it's brutal and it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, flaying people scares them. What you got? At what point does the house rule get implemented? When I want it to? <laughs> oh, oh, the house rule for like when I use them, you mean? Yeah, yeah. If, if like all of a sudden you, you, you hit a jam and it's like, all right, we need to work this out and, oh, okay, we worked it out. Now, is that going forward or I think the, uh, I think you're really referring to like player PC trust, like how to, if you whip out a house rule mid campaign right. no, and it's not something you set them up. Right. Um, okay, so when I start my campaigns, and we usually have, like everybody, there's always that player who doesn't show up to your group. So you have the alternate game you play, and that's where we test a lot of our house rules out right now because. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's an on-the-fly kind of thing. But what we do is there's the established house rules we're using. It's usually only one or two, maybe three things, because we love them. They're there. We want them there. Like how we resolve critical hits, because we like them to be brutal and horrible because you got crit. We want people to be really, you know, looking at how they're going to handle combat. To uh, Today I'm going to be implementing something new. Now, if it's going to be a surprise thing, anything I surprise players with, I usually do it in their favor. I'll give it to them to affect a NPC or a monster they're fighting, and then I'll tell them later, like, no, this rule's in effect. Remember that. 
because they've seen it once. They go, oh, that means it can happen to me. And I don't do it to little tiny things that don't matter. Like the critical hit deck isn't supposed to be everybody who uses it, you know. Same thing. I'll only implement it at big combat, things where it matters, where it can be pivotal. Um, and then the other part that's huge is uh, don't use a lot of homebrew rules at conventions. It's the one thing oh, that will give yes. you, no. you, you. They will hate you in five minutes. You can use a homebrew rule, something that's interesting, like how you resolve a chase scene or a, a fun mechanic, but you put too many in, people are just like, I just want to play. I know this game. I came here to play the game. Why are you adding stuff? So something fun that's like a five-minute part of it or ten-minute part of it is great. Don't do too many. That's just because we're an event. I'm giving you that. So I made that mistake one year, and I will never make it again. Well, I know for my game, most of our house room rules isn't me springing it on them. It's usually they usually come about in a discussion. Like, yeah, we'll go. This is taking too long. How can we make it shorter? Or, oh my God, this is boring. Fix it. And and then and then we'll we'll just have a round robin. And and we're like, okay, from now on, we'll do this. Go forward. And mm-hmm. it's not so much me slamming it down on them, but it's us agreeing. At, you know, like, it we're evolves. all there to have fun. Right. So, so we're just trying to have more fun, and this that's a way to do yeah. it. And, uh, and then and then they help me remember because, you know, they're, they're, it's part of their rule, too. All the rules come, too, because a player wants to do something, there's just not a rule for it. And they want something fun, you're like, I oh, you know what, I have something I can do for this. Or they come up with something like, what if I just do this? Is that possible? And we'll implement that into the, into the game. Yeah. For sure. Let's hear another house rule. I have something that I do on occasion. I'm not sure. It's, it's sort of a house rule, but it's uh, I, would, I call it mini games. And so sometimes in the campaign, I'll switch things up just for one battle. So for example, I did one battle where the players were inside a hollow tree. So instead of the battle map being you know the two horizontal directions, it was a vertical battle. So yep. I drew like these things that they were moving on, so moving in a vertical direction, a horizontal direction. And then uh, another time, whenever, whenever I have like a big war scene, there's no way I'm going to use the D20 rules as written for like, you know, armies colliding. So I grab some other like tabletop kind of game. I'm like, yeah, okay, here's the tokens. They have a number on them. When they attack, roll a D6 plus that. Yep. Injecting uh, new rules for other systems. I mean, that's that's something that we were talking about. I love that. That's something I addressed. I had the honor and privilege of introducing my cardinal, my, my prime house rule into the Pathfinder role-playing game and Recipe Must Die, and that was the same problem I addressed earlier, was how do you represent real-world, realistic troops from our Earth in-game? And I apparently inadvertently stole the mob rules from the uh, the dungeon, the, the DMG2 or whatever from, uh, from Watsi, but uh, I thought you know, or saying sort of the minion rules, right? You know, mm-hmm. I wanted a minion type rule that says, you know, these guys act as a big unit. So I, I took the swarm rules and modified it. And what I did is I created a base stat block that's CR8, and uh, and it's uh, it's modular for those of you who are D20 players to uh, in a similar way to the animated object rules, where you create your base animated object and then you spend a few points yep. to give it an extra attack, to give it extra movement, to try to customize it to <clears throat> approximate what a animated chair might do or an animated table or, or whatever. Uh, but I did, you know, these guys are heavily armored. I made all these qualities that cost certain points, and, and I was able to introduce that as as troop rules. And the reason I did that is because my home game is exactly what you just described, in that sometimes I need to, to do a battle, but I don't want to go to another system. 
So I made this rule that represents units of, From of creatures because that way we can zoom out and go, all right, you're at the Battle of you know Blackwater Bay or whatever, yeah. and here's what's happening, and you're here, and then go, all right, you guys are entering that house, and just zoom into it, and we're back at a personal combat yeah. level. And uh, take it, use it. If, if, it's a vineyard, if you ever need to... Uh, to do that in a D twenty game, the true it's the troop rules, which were published for free on on Paizo's blog, and uh, I I I'm un- unashamedly proud of of those because it allows you to not impose a new system on your players to, to use this in a, in a way that we did that, that makes them we did that in a very different fashion. We were handling a war a scenario where we had troops that were like that level one to four, one to three, and they were pre made groups and they were commanding the troops so instead of playing their guys they go to that scene and they play that group mm-hmm. of characters and it was nice because uh, do you guys have players that love to build characters all the time mm-hmm. yeah well I made that his job so right. he made all of these different groups of war fighters and you know I use guns in my games I'm doing steampunk and he made all these different you know warriors during the ghoul wars and um, it's a lot of it was a lot of rooftop combat and crazy. I said, "Here's the things they need to build. Do make them for me." So he was proud that he got to make characters for the group, and it was like an hour of our time. But they got to see something else that was going on in the city, and then I had them show up to that section as their characters to handle something that they all died from. So it was kind of cool to be able to do quick combat done low level, and then come back to their high level guys to handle something that was important. So that's one of the things I like to do is zoom out and change perspective because it gives them a new view on the story. So we've heard a lot of really good house rules, but I'm actually just as interested in the other two-thirds of the time thing. Which was? Remind us. Totally ridiculous house rules. Oh, Oh, okay. We can do that. We can do that. I got got one. You got one? Let's hear it. All right. So we used to play Rifts. And if you haven't played Rifts, (laughs) there is, it's the worst power creep I've seen in a game of all time. A new book came out. And uh, the guy wanted to play it, and he wanted a house rule that only he had mega damage <laughs> as a player. And now me being an inexper- inexperienced GM at the time, I was like, that sounds like a great idea. You're really powerful. That's great. Don't let your players pick rules if you haven't seen them. And I know that sounds like you should know it, but you trust your players to... Because I don't, I don't get to read everything all the time. Something new comes out. I mean, Missy's like, I really want to play this. And you trust them. Players lie. And that was the worst house rule. It wasn't even a house rule. It was a real rule that he brought in. But be careful what you let players bring into your game. We should all know that. That was the worst thing I've ever seen. And I didn't realize until like the second or third session. I'm like, this guy is just annihilating everything with mega damage. What is going on? Um, that was a horrible. I've got a similar situation. And, and I spend a lot of my time and energy on message boards defending third-party publishing. Um, a lot of this is because I, I, I straddle the fence. I work for both Paizo and smaller presses. And I get to see actually a, a weird paradox in that I find that the smaller press stuff, Coldwell Press in particular, we play test the hell out of that yep. stuff. We've got crazy play testers. Newsflash, folks, Paizo doesn't play test. No. Okay? No. So it's funny. You get on the board and people are like, I'm only official Paizo. Screw all those third-party publishers. And you're like, you know, that's just rules. It's just, what you hear so much is that's just somebody's house rules and they put it to paper. 
Well, <laughs> it might have started off like that, but those house rules got play tested by 20 different groups all yep. over the world, play whereas Paizo let two development passes go by and it ended up in a hardcover. Yep. Not to diss my bosses, right? I mean, they pay me they pay me all right. But what's that. funny is that to, to compliment uh, Eric's story is that uh, to me the worst and where this comes from is that in in the glut of third edition era. Uh, stuff. A lot of house rules did get published that weren't pro- properly vetted. And for me, the worst, and I hope there are no old school AEG Gee, freelancers in here. Please tell me it's not the Gorilla But uh, the AEG Feats book. Yeah, I had two. Well, one player show up with it, and uh, he was a, he was a dagger tossing rogue halfling, and uh, gets a feat out of that book that was very easy to qualify for that uh, allowed him to make attacks of opportunity at a range. Yep. Okay. And and then had another feat that gave him 60 foot uh, 60 foot spread. And and he shows up at one game with it. And it was pretty brutal with the halfling throwing daggers until he took the feat that let his sneak attack damage apply to those range attacks. Yep. And then the, arch, the arcane archer in the group goes, that's really handy. Next game, they leveled up. Boom, new feet. It was so brutal. I mean, I, I wanted to burn I the same and, 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 and that's what it was. It was, it was, yes. I they, lost they it out of my mind. Yeah, they, they brought, uh, they basically brought someone's published house rules yep. to the game. And then they could run their sneak attack me. to a D8. Oh, yeah. It was, oh, guys, it was so, and so, yeah, at some point, I, I want to see you all back, actually. That was ruined a campaign. Yeah, and, and that's when we took it, like you were saying, as a group. We went, okay, guys, is this really fun? Now, like, there are these hardcore orc barbarian guys charging you. They didn't even get within 50 feet. And there's just <laughs> this radius of, de- of corpses. Yeah, you know. nothing made it past 60. Right. Because there's a sneak attack on all of exactly. them. Exactly. So, wow. so, so that was one of those times in the group we went, okay, that's not fun, is it? It's, it was. Now it's not. not okay. <laughs> you know, we're going to house rule that house rule out of our house. So Yeah. yeah. That yeah. was the ludicrous for me. That's when I started and, and that, I, Maybe that's books. not fair that it, it was a published feat, but it, it was yeah. to me. I always felt like that's where the stigma of third-party publishers publish house rules, where that's what started to create that stigma. <laughs> and, and, and it's something I have to that's fight about, uh, as a freelancer. It's fight. not as bad as it used to be, though. It's not no, oh no, 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 no. I think everybody really, really tries hard to, to yeah. play against that stigma. Oh, so I, I know a rule that our group. Uh, we started using and it was good at the time and then we kind of figured out later on like slowly we figured out why it wasn't a good rule was uh, we had we had a couple of spellcasters in the group and when it came time for their turn they weren't ready they were still flipping through their spells they were trying to do all the math in their head so we bought a little uh, little timer did that yeah and it was great for these characters who had been playing for years and and it hurried them up but it kind of, when we bring in new players who didn't know how to play spellcasters? It kind of scared them off. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want that, you know. They didn't want to have, you know, like I don't know what I'm doing. So putting the time crunch on there, it makes it even worse. Yeah, it's for pros, chess players with a uh, chess players on the clock versus normal like just playing yeah. chess. It's exactly yeah. And so, so we we eventually had to get rid of it just so our newer players would play spellcasters because I I ended up with everyone new played fighters for the first three levels. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's a rule we implemented, and it sounded like a good idea. It was a good idea, and then we still had to remove it for one reason or another. Um, speaking of spells, the last crazy horrible thing: players love to make new items and spells. 
don't let them make anything that's paralysis at a low level spell. You will hate yourself. Hate yourself in the end. And a guy who made a ranged paralysis spell. I'm like, oh, it's ranged. I want it to be second level. No, it was not. And that was not high enough. Play test spells a little bit before you let your players keep it. Like, I ended up making it to where if you make a new spell, it has to be cast X amount of times before it can actually be part of their spell book. Like, they're testing it out and it costs them money to use it so that I oh, can that's go. Good. That's yes. a good rule. So, like that, that. so that I can go. No way. Uh, that's the material happen. component cost is very high right, as they will right, it down. And, will like it down. and then because you can go, you know what? Oh, yeah, the range is so high. But because of that, that was because of this material component. And you axe away that cost, you get down to that spell component pouch that they carry with them. Because you got to think, that's why things like Wall of Force are 1,000 gold. Yeah. That's 1,000 gold because it's a wall of freaking force. Like, you needed it. And that's how I started, really high cost, so they can kind of wean it out until we get it down to something that was manageable. And then they weren't spamming it every round because you spam that thing constantly with a rogue that could have grabbed the guys afterwards. Well, that was one of the main reasons I showed up today because I know Wolfgang in his home campaign, he upped the levels for fly and teleport and everything. And he did that about a year ago, and I was just curious of, like, Okay, a year later, how do you feel about that? Is it working? What what were some, what are some of the effects on your campaign? Some of the effects on your group after that has become the norm? I made failing that kind of stuff near fatal. Yeah. Is what I did for it in my world. Like teleporting off, wrong way, not good. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing for dimension door and all those things. I made them a little more it, brutal. Because like we said earlier, after after six level, it's a it's a different game. Yep. And uh, I know a lot of people want that low-level feel, but they want to feel powerful, and it's kind of a paradox. And there, there's certain things you can tweak to keep that feel in. And uh, and I know I know Wolfgang's been doing it for about a year, two years now. Yeah, I, I uh, in my E6 campaign, again, I've run a, a sort of a low-magic Black Death era undead infestation. That's, that, that's my pet thing with a lot of, again, with a lot of, Internal church conflict between sects and, and fact, factions, and uh, before the players made characters, I just went through the spell list with yep. a red pen. Yep. Because again, you know, I, I this is a world where don't exist right life now. is short, and uh, yeah, and clerics, you know, magic users, well, magic users get burned for one, but uh, you know, they're they're not flying around and licensing you know. in my games. All I do is be licensed to do uh, evocation in necromantic spells. Uh, you have to be licensed for it, so you pay, and you pay double for those spells to put them in your book. That's it's a little doing, harder to get. That's how I'm doing gunslingers. And the, right. and the other thing that I did recently for... Um, spellcasters seem to be the bane of a lot of games because they can yeah. do some crazy stuff. Well, yeah, they, the, they start bending reality. Right, and yeah, and imagine we, that. Reality breaks. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the other thing we did, too, is um, spells like you're talking about that are too powerful and too hard to do, they became rare one cast. So, like, you can't... You've lost the way to transcribe them, and they become oh, something you can only that's a use one. once, or you can use X amount of times. So you, almost like a charge. Well, in uh, Monty Monty Cook's book, uh, the Unearthed Arcana or Arcana, Arcana Earth, Earth. Earth. Uh, I forgot about uh, that book. Is great. Yeah, they, uh, that. he has a uh, his magic system. Our spells are defined by simple, medium, and and exotic. Yep. And if they're exotic, you have to buy a feat to know how to cast a spell. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's like specialization. I remember that now. Actually, yeah. That's good stuff. That's a killer rule. I like that. It's all yeah. So if you want, you can be the guy that teleports. I mean, that's fine. That's what you you do. You got to pump that. You got to use that slot for it. Your taxi service. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Better start charging. So I actually have a similar spellcasting. So one of my players likes to summon a lot. Some very powerful things. So so Zion.
uh, role where you roll the attitude when it summons and if it's if it doesn't like you when it summons it might break free and kill you um, <laughs> i have a cure to your cancer um Three point five. It sounds like he cured it. That sounds yeah. like a, a fantastic solution. That's great. Like they could be hostile. Because that's shadow run right there is what that is. Um, three point five had a small blurb. And I don't know about you guys, I love jamming, but I don't read the GM book very often. No. Um, I know that's probably like absolutely ridiculous. What? But um, I don't read it. I'm like, oh I got it for because it used to be the magical items are in it, and that's why you had the book, no matter what game it was. Um, there's a little blurb that talked about when you summon, you only summon one thing, but you get to stat them out. Yeah. So the people become really proud about what they summon for each level of spell. So your first level summoning, you summon this. Your second level, you summon this. Your third level, you summon this. And a guy wanted to be a summoner. I'm like, well, here's what we'll do. You can do the point-by system just like you normally would. We can know we know what the stats are, baseline, X, Y, Z. We can figure out the stats. He took the time to build his summons. It did two things. One, he knew his summons. There was no looking them up anymore because that sucks time up. And then the second thing was is there was a pride behind him, and he didn't want him to die because, I mean, he had to make another one. So there was this pride behind what he did, and he really loved He named them. They were like yeah. friends to him. Like It was Beastmaster is basically yeah. what he turned into. Um, and uh, it got away from that problem of summoning and having too many things on the board at once. Well, and the, the cool thing is, as a DM, if, say, he's summoning the same demon over and over again, you and know. it's named, and, and they hate each other, they love each other, and then you have an adventure where they go to hell. Yeah. Well, 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 <laughs> you got to hand that guy. In hell, done. demons summon you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got. I'm just going to throw this out there, a little little uh, table scrap, because you know, I don't. I don't know if this is a good, bad, or totally ludicrous rule yet. Um, <laughs> still it, testing it, this but, one. Yeah, still testing. <laughs> this one. It's brand new. That's the concept of halos, and I and I mean that in the in the saintly term. Again, I'm in a heavily religious campaign, a, a sort of inquisition, if you will, and I have a house rule where. Everyone has an aura or a halo, but uh, with a feat, you can start feeding your halo with magic items in a way that combats what we call the Christmas tree effect, where everyone feels like they've got to have all their slots filled with all the prerequisite magic items. So no longer do you just wear a ring of protection. You actually absorb the powers of that ring of protection. It turns into a regular ring, and you now have plus one you know, uh, the plus one bonus that it would normally give. The drawback is you can't take that ring off and trade it in for a plus three and have an extra plus one laying around. Now you can absorb that plus three and it's going to, you know, and because the the slot system, you're still filling your slots. It's just the slots aren't on your body, they're on your soul. And uh, I've just begun this, and it's a way for me to... Yes, you know, if you have an uh, overload. You know, it, right, right. I mean, you have to award those magic items because the CR system in, in third edition yeah. gaming, D20 gaming, is built around the assumption that they have these magic items and a certain value of magic items at those levels. And so this is my solution to keep the PC's power level up without loading them down in a low magic campaign where a magic sword is rare. So, And I also it also ties into a relic system I have where relics are the magic I items. I swear to God, we're running the same game. Yeah. Yeah, we need to yeah, um, we'll talk. It's crazy. So, so that's my new one. Whether it's good, bad, or totally ludicrous, we'll find out. But the slots don't stack, so... I would have a power overload system for that. <laughs> oh, I got a question. What about extreme house ruling? 
like doing making the game almost totally different, like absolutely violating, you know, central rules like people don't gain hit points or doing things like, you know, no magic items or no magic at all or no magic, I don't think, is really violating a huge rule. That's yeah, that's a that's setting really. thing. But if you're changing things like how you hit and um, how you how you hit person, how you damage the person, you really have to remember it is a serious, serious ripple effect. Mm-hmm. When you change how hit points yes. work, yeah. feats, damage for weapons, everything gets rippled, and you're going to find out the hard way that you may have hit the game, or you made it just you might have just totally broke it. <laughs> so my answer usually is you might want to look for a game that is more along the lines what you want. Right. And then work on changing the system you love to maybe reflect that a little more. But we've had to do that in the past because, again, the hit point yeah, issue. Yeah, I, t- I, t- I tend to follow uh, Vic Words of Paizo actually was on the message boards, and, and a third-party publisher asked a question about, you know, I've basically totally rewritten this and rewritten this. And at some point it was so rewritten that he says, maybe you've gone beyond the the terms of the OGL agreement. Right. If you've had to, and so I use the o, OGL measurement. If you've gone so far beyond the basic assumptions of the game that the OGL would recognize it, it and yeah. don't need to put the OGL in the back of the book, yeah. that's a freelancer way of looking at it, right? But well. then, yeah, <laughs> then maybe that either either that's not the system for you, or you know, you wanted to make uh, a new system to begin with. Yeah, you just needed a skeleton. And, yeah, but no. but but also know that you know, uh, that those systems have been tested and. Uh, we found out changing damage on weapons can be rough because we included firearms, and I didn't want... I wanted revolvers. I wanted old-school, you know, Wild West revolvers because Victorian time frame and Wild West time frame is the same time frame if no one knew that you do now. Um, and I wanted that. But guns in D&D are not deadly. They're not... You shoot them, it's still a D6. I can shoot you three times, four times. It's just a D6. So we introduced two things. One, um, we went to DR... Two uh, exploding dice, and it was exploding to show. So when you say DR, critical. you mean armor as DR. Armor as DR. So that's a popular house rule, right? right is, is armor as and, DR. And we found that what happened is armor as DR is great until someone gets full plate and their armor as DR is an eight, and you're shooting them, and the only thing that's now hurting them is bullets because people aren't doing enough damage. Like a rogue goes to stab with a sneak attack, he's, he's SOL. So we had to go back to the drawing board and revisit it, and we've got it to where we like it now. Um, and I, I'll tell you what, like, it really made me pay respect to the old combat and tactics from 2nd edition where piercing, slashing, and bludgeoning served purpose. And then it's like, are we bogging this down too much? So be careful if you start changing rules because you basically are now a game designer and, and you, you shoot yourself in the foot. One more question. Well, I have a follow-up, because I think he's referring to the campaign that I just ran for. <laughs> <laughs> is he calling you out? <laughs> That's this awesome. This is a rule that fall, I think, into all three categories uh, in succession. Now, this was a D20 modern game, and I wanted to, for, for, this, for story flavor, I wanted to move hit point progression from the characters to their armor. So they sure. upgrade their armor to get more hit points instead of themselves getting more hit points. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at low levels, that actually worked out pretty well. It seemed to be a success. And then um, two things happened. One, the players stopped investing in better armor, so they started getting underpowered. And second, the, the mech rules, I did not realize ahead of time, were carefully crafted to exclude mixing mechs and characters. And so I was fighting 
the rules for the mechs the whole time because I didn't realize ahead of time that I could do a D20 have, future? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, I couldn't have a battle with a character and a mech in the same battle because the mechs yeah. had BR 20 mm. base right, right. from there and characters even with the lethal weapons could on a good day do 20 days. My answer was mech weapons because I actually did that in, in D20, D20 future. I was working for a small publishing company called Dark Horizons. My answer was mech weapons but yeah, it's... It's hard, man. That was a hard system to mess with because it was a flux of in between 3 to 3.5 when Star Wars came out, or right before Star Wars came out. And that was like their beta test for Star Wars mm. saga and yeah, all the rules. Yeah. And there was a lot of beautiful stuff in there with a lot of really ugly stuff, and you found it. Uh, <laughs> it, it was rough. Folks, we need to wrap up and let the next group come in here. Thank you for listening to us with the good, bad, and totally ludicrous. I don't know what you're talking about. Bring them home. <laughs>